like in order to be really competitive in academia and go into those R1 positions, your work needs to be your life to an extent. Yes, you can spend time with family, but either you're super duper efficient or you need to sacrifice or probably both for most part. You know, I started to realize that first, I'm not superhuman. And throughout my PhD, I was like, wow, I'm in this perfect Petri dish for burnout. This is not like, yes, I can make it work, but it's not going to last a whole career. So I need to rethink about it. And it forced me to kind of step back and be like, okay, what do I like most? Hi there, welcome back for another Macademia podcast episode. Myself, Ofarizal Balnea and Elena Iskovic get together with fascinating people to explore different ways science and scientific careers can be developed outside of academia. Before we introduce our guest for today, we want to thank you, yeah, you, that join our Macademia group on Facebook, follow our account at Macademia P on Twitter, rated our little project, liked our work, or shared it with a friend or colleague. This, aside from motivating us, support others to join this important conversation as we explore those very different ways of how science is much more than just academia. Today, I have the privilege of talking to Dr. Gili Meir. Gili is a certified mental performance consultant and the research director for sports psychology department at the JFK School of Physio- Psychology at National University. She spent years studying and perfecting methods unlocking higher performance consult athletes and coaches of different levels age and sports as well as trains the next generation of professional in this field we are here to talk about her interesting career path that spans from research to physical and mental consultant to coaches uh, for higher achievements we are mostly interested in understanding how to make the connection of bringing scientific finding or to actual useful tool for her clients and also if possible how to apply some of those tools to mental high performance scientists hi getting Alan hey <laughs> I'm very happy to have you here and, and talk to you I, I'm I was I'm very thrilled because I You're the embodiment of the two things I love is science and sports and and basically the bridging between them, how you perform better at both ends at very, very demanding fields. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun field. It's a, one that I stumbled into always being interested as a tennis player, uh, growing up and really feeling the mental side of the game and not necessarily excelling at it. Um, and with age realizing, um, you know, I'm not going to be on tour, uh, this is not going to be my professional career. So how do I still combine my passion to sport and to tennis and bring in the mental side and help other get better at what I, you know, struggled with. And I see many struggle with, so it's fun. It was, uh, a, a great opportunity to combine two passions into a career. Uh, that, that that's great I think that we will we, we circle back to this point uh, several times during our talk because I'm also I came from I'm not as an individual sportsman as as uh, as you are uh, playing tennis but I was uh, playing as a goalkeeper until I was 16 
uh, in a team and a goalkeeper in a soccer team is kind of like it, it's a lone role it's the only one it's very it's very unique on the field and it, it has a very different perspective and I was I was very into science and I realized that maybe this kicking ball uh, thing won't turn out to be a career so maybe <laughs> I need to go back to school but really do something that is that is of interest. I, I love being a goalkeeper. I didn't want to be anything anywhere else on the field. I love doing science. I didn't want to do anything else. Um, Gilly, tell us a bit about yourself today. So I'm, I'm currently faculty um, in the sports psychology program at John F. Kennedy School of Psychology at National University. We are very much known as an applied program. We train the next generation of mental performance consultants. That's our specialty. Um, as such, I take a big role in that, um, though I do have the research director hat on. Um, and the way that I see it is really an opportunity to embody the research practitioner approach. So, you know, most of our students, they're not looking to be researchers. They're looking to learn how to do the craft of sports psychology. And my goal is, if you're going to be good at it, you need to come from an evidence-based practice. So you need to understand what actually works based on science and not just your instincts or your experience, but look at it from a systematic approach and try to apply that. And, you know, we have a lot of students that come in that have a sports background. So it's kind of like, okay, yes, you can trust that, but to an extent. Now, how do you expand on that um, and not just make your experience as an athlete true to everyone? Um, and really, you know, grow that, grow that skill of being able to work with individuals, be able to identify what works for them what doesn't work for them and build on that in order to get them to get to their peak performance. We, we talked previously in other um, interviews with, with people who are doing consulting for firms for like coming in for uh, a firm doing that have a process at hand and they need to solve a problem, optimize the process and everything. And, and, and they talked about coming with their uh, training from the PhD program or research-based program that they can apply those uh, hypothesis-driven, like uh, trial and error kind of tools into learning what is the problem. So it's something that you, it's something that is, I guess, a part of this, the performance consultant uh, way of working, right? Yeah, it's basically what we do, right? So instead of it being a firm, I mean, m many of my colleagues actually do work with firms as well, but, you know, it's about, coming to a team and looking at it from that holistic approach of what's going on, what's working, what are some areas that we can identify that, you know, it's not clicking right. There is lack of coordination. There is lack of trust. There's lack of cohesion, many different elements. Motivation is not there. The, um, the climate is not um, conducive to optimal performance, many other pieces. So step one, you know, just coming and it doesn't matter if we work with an individual client or with a whole team and just assessing what's happening. Um, and from that generating a hypothesis of, okay, this is what I think needs to happen. And then you develop some type of intervention plan, you try to implement it and test it out. Did it work? <laughs> Did it actually have results that I was hoping for? And if not, go back, then readjust it. But it's very much coming from that 
perspective of what do we know, what we don't know, let's test it, and let's see if we can make a difference. So, you know, it's not a, it's not necessarily, um, there's no prescriptions to it. Um, it's a lot of combination of science and the art of implementing that science in a way that is appropriate for each client, each situation, each team. So it's a very tailored type of approach in order to truly be effective at it. Sounds like a, a complex lab work. Like the, the main thing I love, I love about, about my lab work is the fact that I, I know my limits in working with people, like with actual people. It's one of my limits, and uh, but, but this seems like a, a real life lab experiment that you are <laughs> that you go yeah. through and wait for the result. And I am at all really, I mean, it sounds amazing. <laughs> and of course, doing this for like a, um, a sports team or, or a sports person or or maybe a, a company comes brings me uh, to one uh, a TV show I like, uh, Billions. And uh, what I picture now is uh, Wendy Rhodes, <laughs> keeping everyone at peak performance every time, really by, by just like, you know, making them self-reflect and, 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 and be their best they possibly be in the context of the, the place they, they are. Yeah, no question. That show did a lot to promote our profession, kind of like, yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> yeah. That's very good, very good uh, for, for like, uh, you know, benchtop scientists, the pandemic helped, but then, you know, you had to shut down like almost the entire world to people to appreciate <laughs> the, the preclinical lab rat. <laughs> that um, so this is today's uh, Gilly. Yeah. When, how did it start? So what drove you to this or more of a like, I can... Let's start with what drove you to this to this uh, area and how you paved the way to do to do today. Yeah, so I started off as a tennis player. Um, you know, I wasn't too bad, but I was definitely not going to make a career out of it. Um, and I I was born raised in Israel. I went to the university, and I was always intrigued by psychology. So I went there, I got my undergrad, I played tennis for the university, captained the team, still had a blast doing it. It was this brilliant contrast between just needing to cram and having the opportunity to go out and play tennis and kind of relax and introduce exercise, which today, uh, you know, after studying it for a while, I know how much that is important to enhance intellectual abilities is to have the right physical state as well. So that's kind of how it started and continuing to play tennis and getting this idea thrown to me by my um, coach of like over 10 years of like, oh, you should totally go study sports psychology, which I've never heard of. Um, back in the day, that didn't really exist in academia in Israel. So the logical step was to go abroad. So I moved to California to get my master's um, in kinesiology. And the science of movement. And I specialize in sport and exercise psychology. That's where I really start getting to know the field. Um, and I got there, you know, after being fairly confident that what I want to do was be a clinician, um, applying and going through the whole process of um, 
trying to get into clinical psychology master's degree. And then as I was sitting there in the interviews, I was just constantly talking about sport. And I got that feedback back from one of the interviewers of like, yeah, maybe you should consider studying that and, you know, combining those two passions. So following that advice, I did that. And it was interesting. So again, coming in with a very um, applied state of mind of I just want to work with athletes and getting the opportunity to start doing that um, as part of my training, but also having an opportunity to join a lab that was funded by the NIH and was studying motor learning. Um, and how do we teach um, people of different ages most effectively to pick up um, either lost or new motor tasks? So like walking, if you just had a stroke and you're aging, or, you know, pick up new skills, and what is the best way to teach it as we age? So I got into this world of science, I'm like, whoa, this is really cool. I'm having a lot of fun with it. Um, and from there, very quickly, I was like, okay, not ready to stop as the school part, and I want to continue, um, continue doing research. I discovered I genuinely enjoyed it which led me to Florida State, where I went to get a PhD in educational psychology. And again, the specialty is sport and exercise psychology. Now, because I already had a lot of the sport and, sport and exercise training, I had opportunity to really expand my tool bag and I got extensive training in statistics. And it was all quite deliberate. At this point, I was realizing I want to go into academia. Um, if you look at psychology department, kinesiology department, the person that is always missing is the person who knows how to do research. So I decided I'm going to make myself the best at that and give myself an opening to academia through that. Um, so I got a statistic and measurement um, certificate um, and really made myself familiar with both qualitative and quantitative um, techniques for analysis and mainly got familiar with all the opportunities. I don't necessarily know them all, but I know quite a lot about them and I know how to get more resources when I need it. And that really was my entrance key to my first academic position. So, so in, in this aspect before, when, when you found yourself getting those quantitative skills and bringing them to the field that needed them, what would people do? What, what had people done until that point? Like how they, how they conducted research until that, like until that time, I don't know if, how to say it. Like uh, how they conducted research um, when you say it was lacking this measurements, this quantitative quality, it was more quality I don't think it was necessarily lacking. So if you look at our field, you have the practitioners and you have the researchers. And there was a very um, significant gap between those professionals. So it's not to say that practitioner didn't consume the research, but it wasn't driven to the point of, okay, let me work in the field. Let me see what questions I get up. And then from there, let me bring that to the lab and test it. Um, and I was very fortunate to be trained in a very cognitive psychology oriented lab at Florida State, where we focused on um, decision making, on attention studies, perceptions. How do you, how can we 
manipulate that and alternate that in order to help people get the peak performance, which is very applied in its nature, right? So in this lab, we were, um, for a period of time, we were all very interested in exercise. How do we get people to exercise longer? And we kind of picked up on the fact that, well, if people are not suffering or they perceive their exertion to be lower, that we can get them to stick to it a little bit longer. So we had a line of like six different studies, different groups doing, looking at different angles, looking at different factors. So one was trying to look if we can add music to it. Can we change how people perceive um, the exercise and get them to stick to it for longer? One team was looking at manipulating smells and tastes, trying to think, okay, if, and the idea, again, it's very applicable in the sense of if we can get people to like chew on peppermint gum or have a peppermint are we gonna make any difference with it? Um, some team was focusing on smells. Can we like, are there smells that are more um, conducive and, and less to getting people to exercise? And, you know, just playing around with some ideas of how do we get this to deal with a real problem, which is sedentary. Like most Americans are sedentary and around the world as well, but definitely an American problem. Um, and then later on, you know, a lot of us got a lot more into the performance piece. And we started looking at decision-making and how do we um, coordinate decision-making among a team was a topic of interest. How do, we, how do experts generate um, options to do and then get the other teammates to predict what they're going to do or what they're not going to do? So starting to coordinate movement and coordinate um, schemas of how we think about um, a situation a dynamic situation in the sporting environment. So, you know, very, um, very technical, um, cognitive type of approach to doing this um, profession. And I was super fortunate that the, um, the head of the lab, he was a statistician in training, an athlete, um, a professional athlete at a point becoming a statistician and then focusing on sports psychology. And he would just, you know, drill in the design perspective of it. So again, it's not necessarily that all of us um, could do all of the fancy analysis, um, but we can all conceptualize them and get the statisticians to help us out with that piece of it. So looking at those departments, it's not like they're, they are not, um, because it's a very applied field, a lot of people, you know, they don't opt to do the research. And then coming in, um, especially into the liberal arts types of schools, and not necessarily the R1s, you're always going to have those people who are like, okay, <laughs> who can teach the research methods? Who can make that, um, who can gap that? or bridge that gap between those two areas and who can get practitioners to think about their work from a systematic or from a research lens really, because that's effective work. Otherwise, you know, you're teaching some skills that yes, they're useful, but they're not tailored to a specific issue. So your likelihood of being very effective is limited. So it sounds, it sounds like you were fortunate to be, to become this, this bridging, this one-stop shop that allows you to understand both, so both ends of the stick. When I, what I was referring earlier as lacking is not lacking, but it's actually separated. The, the two entities were there, but in order to do good work, 
entity A, the more uh, cognitive psychology based, and the entity B, the statistician, the measurement, uh, the quantitative side, they were separate and they had a hard time translating each one like way of work and understanding to each other. So it's very similar to a, a problem we have as neck force, for example, my generation of molecular geneticists or molecular biologists that is now heavily relying on a big data, but we're not competition. Most of us are very basic on our computational skills. So it is extremely important to relate to a, a programmer, a, a computer science student that is interested in biology, the biological concepts. And it's very hard to a computational science student, a programmer, to explain compet computational concepts or mathematical concepts to a biologist who has been like for the last 15 years trained on like pipetting in the lab. Now, the new generation is, uh, is exactly that. So the academia just found this niche and they're training everyone the same. Um, also, I know that uh, a couple of medical school programs also, which is like medical school, it's hardcore, very traditional way of learning. They now put in computational science and, and computational and genomics, for example, as, as a yeah. must in their program. And so, yeah, I think like if I go back to your original question for a second, I think I had a very clear plan going in, right? And the plan included me evaluating what type of life I want to have. I was I started my um, my PhD at a relatively late age. I was um, end of my twenties or early thirties already. So it was uh, I had a very clear vision of how I want my life to to look like in terms of balancing uh, family, which is a very high value for me, and um, a career, which is also important to me and being self-sufficient and having venues that um, I enjoy, that challenge me, that get me to progress. So I identified as academia as the answer to that. Um, and it's interesting because it's quite different than what I thought it was going to be, right? So in the beginning, I was going in, I was like, R1 all the way. Like I want the high prestige research institutes. Um, I want to be, <laughs> I want to be world known in the world for my expertise. And like, as I was going through my PhD and having um, three kids through that six year period, I realized that, well, <laughs> it may not align. And it caused me to like, kind of step back and be like, okay, think about it. What do you really want? What are you willing to give up? Are you willing to essentially do what it like in order to be really competitive in academia and go into those R1 positions, then, you know, you, <laughs> your work needs to be your life to an extent. Um, yes, you can spend time with family, but either you're super duper efficient um, and you get done in three hours what a normal person will in one hour, what a per normal person will take three hours to do, or you need to sacrifice or probably both <laughs> for most part. And, you know, I started to realize that first, I'm not superhuman. Um, and I kind of, throughout my PhD, I was like, wow, I'm in this like perfect um, Petri dish 
for burnout. This is not like, yes, I can make it work, but it's not going to last a whole career. So I need to rethink about it. And it forced me to kind of step back and be like, okay, what do I like most? I like most working with the clients. I like most teaching. So, and I like research, but you know, I'm not ready to go into this cutthroat environment to get grant money, especially in our field that, you know, is not swimming in that. But how, how you identify the facts? So, so it, it's, it's extremely important because you managed to, you managed to spot a place in your life, in your professional and personal life, that most of the academics I know and I saw fail at is the place that I'm about to burn out or I'm on the course to burn out and I need to, I need to work in order to, to alleviate it, in order to stop this course and change it. How you manage to, to get to this point that you, how, what, what questions did you ask yourself, how you identify it? It's... Yeah, you know, you, you, I would hope it would be like a clean, pretty answer, but it was really <laughs> far from that. Um, definitely more than once of like, just like a full breakdown. Um, the first one was when I just got pregnant with my first son and I started seeing the differential treatment that I got. I was one of the top students in the program and all of a sudden I was like, oh, we need to slow down for you because now you have other priorities. So my reaction to it was, no, I make my own decisions and push even harder. Um, and I managed to do that probably through my second pregnancy and child as well. And then in the third one, I was like, but why? Like, I don't feel well. I'm not enjoying this anymore. I used to really love this. This, I was fascinated by it. It was not, it never felt like work for me before. And connecting to my professional training, I was like, oh, look at that. I am the manifestation of everything I read about and teach and burnout research. So I think I'm fortunate to be in a field that um, reflection is an embedded part in everything we do, especially when I work with athletes. So that was definitely part of it. And it's part of my everyday practice. But, you know, it was also just a breakdown of, sitting there and stalling for three months on a dissertation and just being like, I just, I don't want to do anything. So, and having my husband kind of be like, <laughs> I think you need to examine what's going on here because it's not going to last uh, in that way. So, you know, I think it was a combination of feedback from my support system, uh, both inside academia and outside of academia um, because you know some of my peers we're all in the same boat um, and I still I say that to my students today still it's like <laughs> burnout is an embedded part of a doctorate program at some point you're going to feel it it's about figuring out how you're going to get over it it's like I've, I have yet to meet a PhD student who didn't experience at some point just a complete dislike and just wanting to be done with it all and not caring about the topic anymore until you kind of step away and be able to develop new passion to it again um, and remember that you actually like it and it's interesting to you. Is there like an equivalent when when you study performance or so burnout is like a, 
as as a is a t- deteriorating part of the performance at the, at, the, at the very end, I guess. I imagine it is like a, a climb up and it's an upward graph and at some point you reach your threshold and, and your productivity and, and performance goes down. And my, my world and is academic, okay? And I can, as you, men- as you mentioned, I can imagine every PhD student and postdoc, by the way, <laughs> is, a, is going through this at some point, some earlier, some later. Is there an equivalent in, like, in outside academia? So in in sports, uh, in sports, it's aside from physical burnout, and uh, maybe companies when when teams and companies that work on a project. Yeah, yeah, it, burnout. It's not special to any field. I think this it's really characterized by um, this lack of motivation, like lack of enjoyment. Um, lack of energy altogether to, to engage in whatever it is you're doing. And something very characteristic of an athlete population and a researcher, definitely the top research population is when you start feeling that, <laughs> go at it with all force. Like this is the time to grind and not give up. Um, and actually we know from the research that the right thing to do at those times is to step back um, and practice less. So when you're getting to that point, you know, when your research is just like over your head and you're done with it, you are going to be more productive many times if you just walk away from it and leave it for a few days and not think about it and give yourself um, a break, but, you know, a guilt-free break, a real break where you're like, I am purposefully not engaging in this. And you're more likely to come back with renewed energy, right? So I think this is like a small step. Um, when you're in the middle of it and you can't necessarily just walk away, but you can also look at it from the global perspective of, you know, an academic career, it's it's a grinding career. Um, And do you want to do it in the long run? Is that the right path for you? Because it's never going to let down completely. Like it has fluctuations and, um, if you decide that, yeah, this is the thing for me, I still like it, I still enjoy it, um, I'm still interested, then it's about being very purposeful about embedding the breaks in and being very um, respectful to yourself with those boundaries and engaging in self-care. Like for, I mean, again, I say exercise because there's so many benefits that go to it, but a lot of times I hear researchers like yeah we don't have I don't have time for it (laughs) especially those with like postdocs a lot of times young families like yeah if I have 20 minutes I'm not gonna take them into exercising but we and we also we almost think of like this self-care as indulgence it really is not this is this is what's going to get you to go like if you don't take care of your whole self you don't give yourself those breaks you're likely not going to be the most effective when you engage in it. Um, And it's going to be very challenging. You know, you can only grind for so much. It's kind of what I say to athletes. If you're already in it, then yeah, it's right for like specify the time you're going to do it and don't make it two years long because (laughs) that's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. I I wonder, so while we're talking, I think of many, many examples and, and many incidents that I've seen in my mind and, what I'm looking for in all those examples is, and you say, you say that you said that a couple of times, self-care, take time to self-care, but it, 
especially in a PhD program or postdoc in academic environment, self is, doing something for yourself is very hard. Do you find yourself, is there any uh, tools for our listeners who are now postdoc and someday will be PIs or young PIs to, to allow this space for self-care, to promote yeah. the, the idea of, I, I have limited amounts of, of like fun, like um, resources to give you. I don't have like, a, I have some like benefits and stuff like that, but, but I want to give you, I feel it. I want to give you this time and like how, how like managers become aware of the need of their, of, of their subordinates of, of their students to take the time to self-care. Yeah. You know, I think the good news is you start seeing this culture shift happening already. Not so much in academia, but I, I do um, start noticing it more in industry where there is this acknowledgement of the need to balance. And I think the coronavirus also kind of threw an interesting variant in it. Um, it made everyone stress levels were going quite higher um, with all the lockdowns and the restrictions and taking away a lot of um, the normal coping mechanisms that we used. But at the same time, it kind of opened our eyes to, oh, look, we can work from home. And how is that going to shift now with everything starting to open back up? What is office reality going to look like? I don't think it reached academia yet. Um, definitely not like biology and all those lab-based type of professions. And I don't think the culture is there, but I mean, these are super smart people that are working there. And I would say that the biggest thing that I would do is restructure how you think about it. It's not an indulgence self-care. It's a requirement for you to function at your highest level or even at, a, at like your 80%. If you are not taking care of yourself, you're at some point your tank is gonna get empty. Like you can sustain it for a while. So I say it's not that a grind is the wrong thing to do. It is sometimes exactly what you need to do. You just need to grind it out, but it's something that you can do for a certain period of time, depending on how hard the task is, how much energy it's taking away. At some point your tank is gonna be empty. And this self-care is that we think of like, going out for a coffee with a friend, going out and doing a 30 minute bout of exercise, um, whatever it is you really love to do, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, that's a time for you to fill your tank so you have more energy and more ability to put it back into your work. So I know like I've firsthand experienced this like culture of you don't say no to anything. You take on as many projects as possibly can. You work seven days a week and the lab is your life. Um, and I think even with that, um, I mean, I still had fun. And I think the big component of that for us, even though we were working like crazy, is lab was fun for us. And that's something that um, both advisors that I had throughout the PhD were very um, wise and thoughtful about in terms of and intentional about creating those environments. So, so they were intentional by 
they hire a certain type of like they were avoid like hiring we're on a podcast so they avoid hiring <laughs> assholes and uh or they were actively putting you in a situation that you need to stop and engage socially non-work wise with people they made the lab into a social environment so it's not necessarily about yes there was definitely a selection process into who goes in um but i think the selection process was not so much around characteristic unless you know you really didn't jive with the advisor but it was more about i want the best people possible but then once we were there you know food for example <laughs> was something that was included in every lab meeting every time we met someone would bring food and there was the social aspect about it um when we were in a major um athletic university so going into watching athletic events that was both work and fun so we would go and it was it was characterized as being okay because we can you know use it as observation time and kind of think about it and run and i mean a lot of our experiments were fun that way too right like we one of my favorite um we're engaging in trying to figure out um quiet eye with tennis players so you need to go to the court you need to look and we start by just like watching film and then of experts and the leaders in the field and then looking at the athletes there and then you know coming down with the equipment to the court and starting to measuring measuring it and um sometimes doing it in the lab depending on the situation but it was reminding us of what we like and the second piece that was huge is always encouraging us to share and to work together so it wasn't this like lone wolf experience yes everyone had their own research project but at the same time we were all working in groups so you were the lead in one project and then you were a member of other projects and And again, in some physical conditions of like, let's meet at the lab, each one bring your laptop and just sit and work there. So, and, you know, and engage in some practices that we know are effective for that. So if right now what we need to do is write, then we would sit together and put, you know, the Pomodoro timer and do 25 minutes of writing, five break, another 25, 10 minutes of break. So make it into a social kind of breaking this like lone wolf thing that is very common in academia of, You knew to do, to do this all on your own. Um, so again, part of it was driven by the advisor. Part of it um, was driven by, by us. Um, but it was an environment that was created. It was about keeping the lab fun. That was a very big part of it that got us to be pretty productive um, and burnout levels like at, at good rate for, <laughs> for docs and, and, and the postdocs with us. <laughs> Let's, let's try to challenge this. There are labs that promote co- competitiveness within the lab and promote this, can give two grad students, a postdoc, the same project and whoever triumphs gets the, the entire credit. That's exactly the opposite of this like, last 40 minutes we talked about. Yeah. <laughs> But still, there are labs like this that are very, very, very successful. Like, how does that work? Because what we know about motivation is it defers for different people. So for some people, 
what really drives them is this desire to please others and to be in a positive environment. So if you put them in a team, they're actually going to produce better results or better performance than if they do it on their own. For other people, being put in the team and having other people rely on you can actually induce anxiety and lower your performance. So if you're a good PI, you really want to try and focus on what is the motivation of, of the people that I'm hiring? What type of lab do I want to do? Like what the type of environment? And then pick the people that are going to thrive in that type of environment. Personally, I don't think it's necessarily the best idea to pit people against each other on the same topic because yes, it drives out the competitiveness. And I think a lot of researchers are very competitive in nature in that sense, it's, it can be, um, can drive them for better results quicker. But at the same time, whenever you hit a wall, whenever you're stuck, you're very, people are very secretive and it's like holding it in. And we know that when you have more minds on a task, and again, it doesn't have to be every time, all the time, it's very important to have that lead position. You are going to get better results. The sum of a group is when managed and led properly is more than each of the individuals in it. So that would be my argument in terms of leadership and how I look at like a PI position trying to um, manage a lab. I think friendly competitions, we always had that, um, but it wasn't one of the expense of another. Um, I think, I mean, again, looking at people who choose this line, they usually come with some background in sport and competitive, competitiveness is a definite um, piece of it, but it's not necessarily one of the expense of the other. So write two grants. And the goal is for both of us to get it. We would usually not go against the same resource, the same resource. We'll go at um, two lines and who's going to get it. Um, and hopefully both are going to get it. And again, a huge piece that was very weird to me coming in because it was not the culture that I came from in my master's, share everything. My, uh, my mentor and advisor, there was nothing he would not share with anyone in the world because. Outside the lab? Outside the lab, everywhere. Even failures? No, in terms of resources, I mean. Mm, okay. So any resource he has, if he did a presentation on something, if he gathered literature or something, he would share that. He would not, you know, hold on to it and say, okay, you go do your own work. I don't want to do the work for you. And that was, that was very much the atmosphere and environment that we had in our lab. It's, it's all a shared resource. And if you can shorten, if you can make me more effective, that's better. So it's not about, you know, I think when you have the right people in there, then loafing is not going to happen. We didn't have the people who just wrote it, um, which can happen in some labs, right? So it's a little bit of a different topic of how do you manage that? But for the most part, most people who come to that and get to the PhD, and get to the postdoc, they're motivated enough that if you get them to help each other, everyone's gonna be happier. And people who have fun tend to, like if we wanna talk about it from a flow state perspective that I know we talked about before, like generating an environment that is facilitative, that is not high in anxiousness, that is fun and enjoyable to be around is a huge component of being able to get people to get in that productive state of mind and continue to progress and help each other, you know, 
when things get tough, which always happens. That's that's part of the work we do. So, like from your experience, what are like in in a research lab might be might be applicable for any organization. But let's let's focus on research lab. What is the most stress-inducing factor that you can come, but let's start by bottom up and try to say, listen, this harms our work and we could do much better if we just neutralize this. What are the, like, the most stress-inducing factors there? So I don't think there is a generalized answer to that. I think it's very dependent uh, I, I on- I really hope the... there is. <laughs> <laughs> No, because, right, you kind of need to identify, as I said, some people like people like different conditions in order to excel. And the big thing to understand about stress is the perception of stress is a lot more important than the stressor itself. So you and I can both look at a tiger in the room and have a different reaction to it. You being, oh, this is not a big deal. I know what to do right now. If I just step away, I have the skills. Whereas I can be like, I'm freaking out right now. And my stress response is, is elevated. So I'm you can you give this, that, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's a tiger. after. <laughs> so if you have the same stressor, we have a deadline to submit um, a grant application. The perception of the individuals needing to engage in that really influences how it's looking. So a few things that are general that can be done is if you focus on the task rather than focus on the result, you're more likely to get people to stay within what they can control and from that um, be more productive and get into a better state of mind. So if you're just worried about if you're going to get the grant or not, you're going to second guess yourself along the way, which is very destructive to allowing a flow state to occur, right? But on the other hand, if you're just focusing on, okay, what I need to do is write this section. I know what the section is. I have an idea of the methodology in my head. So if I just focus on writing that and not worry about what I can control, which is how it's going to be evaluated, I'm more likely to progress quicker. So the first thing is having clear goals. We want to get this application out and then breaking it down into goals that are meaningful to the people who are working on them. And um, probably the biggest piece of it all is matching the challenge level to the skill level of the individuals in the lab. So you know how sometimes we'll be like, <laughs> let me give you a task that is like five steps ahead of where you are in your training. Likely that's going to create uh, an anxious response to it because you don't have the skill set to handle this task. And from that, you're likely not going to do very well. Your performance is going to reduce. Whereas if I match up your skill level to the challenge that I give you, you're most likely to get in that peak. We also don't want the challenge to be low, too low, right? That leads to boredom. And again, the performance usually goes down from it. So making sure you, as a PI, identify what are the strengths of the people in the lab? What are their skill sets? and matching challenges to that and teaming people together based on skill set to match it. So if you have someone who's a very strong writer and you have someone, but you know, the, stat, the stats part and the design part is not necessarily their strongest suit, 
and you have someone who's very strong in the design, but you know, writing it out, it's not amazing. And again, taking into consideration that probably they're both relatively good at it to start with because they made it to the lab, but it's honing in on what do you do best and math and really putting people together and realizing as a PI who works better alone, who works better in a group. You know, a lot of times you can be like, okay, I want to promote this person and help this new doc or postdoc kind of fit in the lab. So let me put them with someone else. And that someone else is like, you just ruined their week because now they need to slow down and explain everything. And they don't necessarily appreciate the social interaction. Whereas for another person, it'd be like, oh, fun. Like, I don't have to do all of this alone. I have someone to talk about, to talk about what I'm doing with. So it's really, yeah. So it's really about... (laughs) Taking the time to actually identify who are the people in your lab, what motivates them, what ticks them, and trying to match as much as possible the task to what is suitable for them. And, you know, keeping in mind that sometimes just there is a lot of grind work that needs to be done and no one necessarily likes doing it and we still need to do it. So it's not about avoiding doing that. It's about measuring it in a proper way that you're not going to get some of your people over the edge, basically. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. For me, for example, I like to talk about my work. I find it very, very important. I hate, so the last year with shutdown, the fact that most of the times where we're, we were in the lab, most of the, most of the times where we could, but we were alone and, and at specific times. So what I was lacking is people to talk to about, listen, I didn't, I done this. I have, it didn't work. I have this much of ideas of why it didn't work, but I need someone to bounce off ideas for mm-hmm. Just talk this out. Even just me talking my experiment out will help me understand it. And, and, and this year was, the last year was horrible for me on that end. And I, I really was maybe 10%, like in 10% of my performance that, that I expected, or I, I know I can. And, but, but again, this is something I, I, as you mentioned a couple of times in our talk, I self-reflected a couple of times in, through a couple of iterations of my career uh, uh, along the years. And I know this is important to me. And when I will, was looking for a lab, when I will, we look for my next position someday, someday, I know this must be, this must be, in it, this must be the culture that I want to go in it, and and I know that, and it's very important for everyone who listens to really take the time and understand what is the uh, uh, culture they need in order to perform best. Not go into a company because it's big, because it's sexy, because it's the hot thing, it, because you can perform best within that company, within that organization. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with that, and I think you really captured kind of my route in the self-reflection of the work. I'm very much like you. I like to work in teams and um, I like to work alone as well, but, you know, I like to be able to break out of that and kind of pick and choose. And I very quickly realized R1, that's, I'm not going to get that. So yes, it's the most prestigious. This is where my program is leading me. I'm like, I have all the... (laughs) I'm building up to that direction, but, you know, it's going to be a very lonely life in academia that way. So, and it's funny you say that because I've been hearing it from a lot of uh, friends who are also in academia 
some in economics, some in um, um, social sciences mostly. And they talk about this move to industry. And it's like, yeah, it's a lot less challenging. Like I don't necessarily have to um, develop and think deep as much, but it's a lot more fun because I get to hang out with people and do the thinking that I do in groups and be part of something. So I think that, yeah, taking this time to really identify and kind of admit that maybe, you know, being cautious with prestige, I guess, is the way I kind of look at it of just like you say, even in companies, like this is the biggest, best, um, fanciest, I'm going to be super proud to have that, you know, business card saying I work for them. I'm part of this team, but then it's like, is it really fun? (laughs) And if not, do, is that what I want? And for some, the answer may be yes, and that's great. And then you identify that this is like your biggest driver, which is great because some some of us are driven by the need to be, you know, amongst the lions. Um, and that what brings out the best performance. But for some of us, that's not it. And that's okay too. That that's, it doesn't, um, it just highlights we're all different. It doesn't necessarily rank the different positions and the different careers, uh, or at least not in the traditional way that we look at them in academia, especially, which is a very hierarchical type of old school. Yeah, I like, I like the, uh, I heard it in uh, Angela Duckworth grit, like being, either you be uh, a small fish in a big pond, or you'd be, a, what, what's better to be a small fish in a big pond or a big fish in a small pond? And I, I know personally, again, it, it is self-reflecting for, for a couple of years, doing some trials and errors. Uh, I perform better and I'm happier and therefore I'm more productive and more engaged when I'm, a, when, when I'm a bigger fish in a smaller pond. And it could be a very small pond. I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not uh, driven by I, I, I actively not driven by uh, headlines by yeah. by, by um, I'm associated with this huge company. Okay, no, I can work in a very small company that does very simple, yeah. very precise thing, but the best. Like yeah, and I think you know, if we're being real for a second. I think a lot of times those who dare to say it are the ones who were in those positions. So I did get that prestigious. I was with, you know, I was swimming with the sharks. Um, and then I said, you know what, I don't like it. But it's a lot harder to admit it, even though sometimes we know it before we come in. And I think we see that. We see that in academia a lot. And something tells me that, I mean, I'm not an expert in your field, but something tells me in your field it happens even more um, more frequently than others, because you're driven to the doc, you're driven to the postdocs, you are looking only at the big universities. Um, and it's not, you're not necessarily, even if you found an advisor or a lab that you really like somewhere that is not as prestigious, you may, you know, thinking to the future, you're like, I'm going to pick the big name, I'm going to pick. So I think it's, it's a very brave, and smart choice if you are aware of it before you're in that situation 
before you get into the big leagues to be like, yeah, it's, it's, it's about not looking at it as a big league and a small league. It's about looking at it as just different areas. And, you know, we had a very, uh, it was a, it was a funny culture in our um, lab where if you want to be shunned, say you want to be a practitioner and you're not going to do research anymore. That was like the sign that no one's going to talk to you anymore. Like not talk to you, but like you, you're not considered serious from that point on. And, you know, with a 10 year coming on 15 year perspective on it, those are the best practitioners I know out there because those are the ones that are, you know, truly living out the research practitioner uh, approach. And they're so good at it that they get the prestigious jobs and positions and develop this like clinic type of or business for themselves just because they're super good at what they do. Even though if you talk to people that we train together, oh yeah, they're a failure, they went out. And it's like, you know, again, being smart 10 years later, being like, it's not, everyone needs to pick what they like. And now that I look back at it and I see the few that made that choice very early on, they're like, it's not that I can do research, I just have, I don't have that desire. My desire is to feed you good research questions and to practice. Um, so I think, you know, this is something that we should talk about. Like when we're talking with docs and when we're starting labs, it's all career paths are legitimate and it's about to, about you taking the time to think what you want and what's going to align with your life goals in general. Because work is, I mean, it's a very big one for a lot of us, definitely for me, but it's not the only one. Um, and it's, you know, I don't think I could have said that as a doc student. I was fighting it the entire way, but today I'm very proudly saying that if I go to a job interview, yes, I talk about the fact I have kids and I have boundaries. And I am going to make sure that I'm there for my family, just like I'm going to make sure that I'm there. So I'm being very proactive and clear about these are my boundaries. This is what I'm going to do. This is what you can expect from me in the professional realm. This is going to be more than what I can do because I have other things in life that I care about as well. And I'm not superwoman. I feel this as well as a, as a parent postdoc in the US, which is, it's not as common as, as you would think, not, uh, and yeah, but I was very frank also, like, like you said, I was very frank with, during the interviews about my boundaries and that I am a dad and I'm, I want to be engaged and everything. And, and when it was respected, then we had to talk, we can progress. But when it was like a, a thing, when I heard the, the, the term, the second body problem or the third and fourth and fifth body problem I was like okay so maybe we're not a good fit let's go yeah. let's part of our ways yeah and I think something that just last thing that I do think is valuable to mention is that it's not the same if you're looking at men and women and that I think there is in many ways it's easier for men to and I've seen that we were there are not a lot of people in our lab that were parents. Uh, so it was very evident. 
but it was not the same treatment for men and women in that sense of like, you can, I think as a woman, as a woman in that environment, it takes a lot more to be like, I'm really okay with having two lives and having multiple identities and being a whole person around it and not needing to hide um, and kind of ignore my personal life in order to make myself fit into this lab. So yeah, just something to point out that I think as a PI and as professionals going in, like, don't be scared to have that conversation. If you're getting the reaction, like the one you said about the children problem, the family problem and all that, then you probably know that not the best place to be, even if it's very prestigious and it will look great on the business card. Yeah. I think we have, we can, out of respect to, to uh, both of our time, because it's, yeah. it's, it's a challenging day. It's the last day of school here in the West Coast. So we're both going to be our PIs at home soon and <laughs> but we have so much else to talk about because you mentioned many times in the conversation flow state which is extremely important and like the holy grail i think for scientists athletes and everything but I, and i have questions about why the hell does academia doesn't hire a person like you on on the payroll to help all those pis <laughs> on a day-to-day basis why there is no wendy Rhodes in academia and and i i really 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 appreciate if we can maybe figure out the time and and, and continue this conversation uh, but really giddy that was amazing and i have i have so much I, I personally took so much out of it and i really hope that everyone who is like yeah, we come, me and Elena, we come, Elena, we come from a position of like transitioning to act from academia to industry and all the challenges in that. But we touched today about also challenges and becoming a PI. So transitioning from a postdoc, from a doc, from a PhD to postdoc, from a postdoc to a PI position and, and managing people and managing yourself in research. And I really hope that people will hear and hear this again and take all your amazing points forward and, and, maybe even reach you because I think you can help many, many of the people <laughs> I, I know that, <laughs> and me as well. I, I can share that in a preliminary talk, you said that in order to walk in the lab, you needed to hear trance music. Yeah, that's me. I, I regulate my arousal with music. <laughs> and I tried it. I never heard this music before. And I can, I can assure you if uh, I tried my, I tried routine, uh, procedures in the lab with or without with different music and I was very productive the most productive <laughs> with this kind of music so thank you for that you already helped me a lot so. <laughs> that's cool <laughs> yeah. Gilly thank you so much that was amazing thank you this was a lot of fun I appreciate it